Hi everyone, you are listening in to What's Going On, a podcast where we have important, relevant, and sometimes difficult conversations to inspire you to start having your own. In today's episode, we are talking about the transgender experience in lieu of the Transgender Day of Remembrance. As we learn from our guest speaker today, who has graciously offered to put in the emotional effort required to educate us on the oppression trans folks face, I'd like for us to acknowledge the harm the colonial perspective of gender binaries has inflicted and continue to inflict upon folks who identify beyond that dichotomy, even if they are accepted within their own local communities. These include trans folks, the Hijra community in India, and two-spirit community amongst indigenous folks. What's Going On is by Suffolk University's Center for Student Diversity and Inclusion in Boston, Massachusetts. Hence, we would like to honor the Mashapi Wapanoak, Akina Wapanoak, Nipmuc, and Massachusetts tribal nations whom this land originally belonged. It is imperative to acknowledge the Massachusetts tribe, who historically lived in areas that make up present-day Greater Boston. It has come time for us to think about the appropriation we have inflicted upon the indigenous community, people whose land was forcefully taken away and culture nearly eradicated. We honour the lives and the diverse tribes, people, and respect the connection to this land. To know more about the land you are on and ways you can support the indigenous community, please visit www.native-land.ca and for those of us in Massachusetts, maindigenousagenda.org. I'm really excited to welcome Kim and Cam. Thanks, Cindy. She introduced you first, so you get to Okay. Hi, everyone. <laughs> I'm Kim Nguyen, um, and I use they them pronouns. Who, who are you? What do you mean, who am I? Oh my gosh, I did do like that. a whole one minute. <laughs> um, I'm Kim Nguyen. Um, I use they them pronouns. Um, I currently work for a nonprofit in Boston, Massachusetts, um, doing healthcare advocacy. Um, but prior to my experience there, I've been a community organizer and I've worked on a lot of campaigns. So, um, and specifically progressive movement campaigns. So, um, yeah, See, look, you do so much cool stuff. It's important to talk about. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for gassing me up. <laughs> um, I'm Cam, also they, them pronouns, Cam Braither. Um, I am the assistant director for the Center for Student Diversity and Inclusion at Suffolk. Um, so I'm mostly just like the professional queer person. Um, and I get to do a lot of really fun work with students on campus. Prior to coming to Suffolk, I worked at UMass Amherst and then the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Um, and University of Michigan doing um, intersectionally focused LGBTQ plus work mostly um, and working around things such as um, educational disparities and racism, xenophobia, specific and how it intersects with queer identities. You are so much more prepared with your intro. I was just like, I thought I was just gonna do like name and pronouns and then suddenly you're like, explain your professional background, but <laughs> good job. <laughs> Yeah, Ken must have done this for so many times that they have like this template just like blah, 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 and that's all. Um, so <laughs> before we go deeper into the actual episode, just a content warning for those out there. We'll be talking about violence against trans folks 
and um, Kim and Ken will be recounting some personal experience that may remind you of your own trials and tribulations. So um, everyone, please take care of your mental health. Um, take a break if you need and come back and join us. So with that, let's dive in. Um, so November 20th is the Chance Day of Remembrance. Um, can the both of you give uh, the audience who may have maybe the first time they're hearing this or um, do not actually know what is it for, can you give like an overview of maybe the audience and um, what do people normally do on that day? Sure. You want me to take the beginning of this one? Okay. Um, so Trans Day of Remembrance is something that actually um, was founded. I had to look this up because I thought it was 1996. It's actually 1998. Um, so it was founded um, by a woman named Gwendolyn, a trans woman named Gwendolyn, to remember her friend Rita Hester, who was actually a um, trans woman of color who was murdered in actually Alston, um, which is something I actually only found out a couple of years ago. And um, I think the concept of T-Door is something that we're actually kind of more familiar with now because we have the Black Lives Matter movement as kind of an additional framework where we're, um, right, there's also the, within the Black Lives Matter movement, there's the hashtag of say her name or say their names. Um, and this is essentially a 90s precursor to that. We know that trans folks don't get spoken about a lot, um, especially when we're talking about the 90s. Like I started transitioning in the 2000s and didn't really know that trans people existed until the early 2010s, um, right? And I was always doing queer activism since high school. So Trans Day of Remembrance came around to give mostly the trans community space to remember our siblings who were either taken from us by anti-trans violence um, or who lost their lives in other ways the first couple of years. But then afterwards, because it's such an epidemic of violence against specifically trans women and specifically trans women of color and specifically black trans women, um, that it be really became a celebration of the lives of folks who were stolen from us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think like for the trans community, it's so important to observe this day just because of lack of visibility, mm -hmm. especially for trans women of color. I think, you know, because trans women of color suffer through so much, so much anti-trans violence. Um, that oftentimes their deaths just become another statistic. Um, and so, uh, you know, the practice that Cam was saying that, you know, also Black Lives Matter is doing around saying their names is about, you know, honoring these people uh, and making sure that people know uh, about these people that is not just a, a statistic of another, you know, trans person getting murdered, frankly, um, or, you know, their lives taken other ways. Um, so I think that's why you know, it's an important day for the community to observe. Yeah. Um, and normally when folks are observing it, it's usually through memorials. Um, this year, um, Trans Resistance Massachusetts, um, formerly also sometimes kind of also known as um, Trans Resistance for Black Lives, if you go on Twitter and find them there, are going to be doing a rally in March. Um, I believe they're going to be gathering in person in Forest Hills, but we're actually going to be streaming the coverage of the rally on the CSDI um, social media on Sunday. So I think it starts at six or seven, um, but a really great organization. So that's kind of one of the ways that folks usually will gather around this is taking time for reflection, but also trying to figure out how we as a trans community can get together and collectively do actions um, to try to protect ourselves and our siblings. I think having been with CSDI, um, with the Center for 
the inclusion for shot for a couple of years. I, I witnessed the fight um, for equity, especially amongst trans folks, you know, from gender inclusive bathrooms to just being able to walk outside and feel safe. And you mentioned about um, the, Black, the Black Lives Matter movement and also um, violence against trans folks, especially um, transgender women of color. Um, would you mind talking more about that and possibly kind of give the audience an overview of or an idea of just how serious this issue is? Mm -hmm. I'm going to give this one to you because you're the one who knows the health outcomes of things. Oh, oh, man. Okay. I could talk for this for hours. So please interrupt me if you know you want more specificity. I mean, you know, in terms of the violence that are that is faced by trans women of color. I mean, I don't want to, you know, pull like the oppression Olympics card, mm -hmm. but I feel like in this case, like I can wholeheartedly say that trans women of color face the worst disparities in health and in almost everything and face the most violence when you talk about marginalized communities. Um, and that's and that's genuinely by design. Um, so I can go more into like health outcomes and visibility, but what I really want to focus on is the fact that like trans women of color are largely the reason why queer folk have any rights at all, but yet trans women of color are still the most marginalized even within the queer community. Um, and that is by design. Um, you know, I can go on about this for hours, but you know, I personally think it's about, you know, how, how we build movements and what we view as palatable. And like, unfortunately, I think the progressive movement, um, you know, up until now, while we've made some really great gains, we've also done it on the backs of people and then haven't given them that same liberation and giving them that same, you know, I mean, kudos that they deserve. Yeah. Um, and then that has, you know, a horrible effect on their lives because ultimately if your community is also the community that is shunning you, putting you in the back, then of course, your life outcomes are not going to be what they're supposed to be. Um, and what I'm really talking about, you know, is even in the fight for marriage equality, which was something that was really big for the queer community. Um, but in the fight for marriage, um, we really tried to, well, not we, but like the royal we, I believe, think really try to create like a palatable version of queerness for cis straight people to understand. And so it became love is love. Homonormativity, <laughs> yay. It became love is love. And while that is great and grand, um, and I'm definitely happy that there is marriage equality for the queer community now, um, if you think about priorities, right? Like folks that are most marginalized in the LGBTQ community, marriage is so, so far away on their list of priorities. Mm -hmm. Like when you are getting denied access to healthcare, when your doctor won't see you because you're trans, when you can't get a job because you're a queer person and there isn't non-discrimination laws in your state, um, you know, when you get denied housing because there's nothing around housing discrimination, when you don't get the basic tools to be able to fill your life and to be able to, you know, live your life, how are you going to think about marriage, right? And so, like, you know, and and I, yeah, and then that leads to you know how pride has is now very corporate and is very tailored towards a version of queerness that is palatable to people, um, and I guess understandable. Um, and so I think 
and kind of taking it all back, you know, trans women of color, although did the most work for, you know, the queer community um, and for a lot of liberation in general, progressive movement building in general, are still the ones that are the most stigmatized in, in our community. Yeah, and I want to talk more about that um, later into the session where you talk about um, transgender women of color and also um, intersectionality, right? Both your queer identity and also your ethnicity. And I want to talk more about that um, later in this session. But I think uh, when, you, when you're talking about marriage equality, it's interesting because when we talk about mar marriage equality, we often think a lot about um, gay folks. We really think about non-binary slash um, transgender people when we talk about marriage equality. And um, I think it's an interesting thing to reflect upon, you know, right? Um, when we first, um, at least for me, when I first got to know about LGBTQ plus communities, it's very, even then it's very um, narrow. It's all about, it's almost all about um, being gay and being out there. Um, and where's the rest of the alphabet in that way, you know? Um, and so confronting that, that um, upbringing of binary, not just binary, but also boxes and categories, um, I think it's something worth thinking about. And so, and so going back to um, you talking about how transgender women of color are often the ones who kind of basically bring um, in, in gaming terms, carrying the queer community to where we are today. Um, and yes, you are continuing being oppressed and discriminated. Would you say then that within the queer community itself, there's, um, there's like a lot of disagreements and in that way, like infighting in that sense? Is oh, that sorry. like, do you think- You froze oh. for a second. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No. So my question, my question was, um, so do you think that's other than um, the discrimination and oppression for queer folks overall, do you think part of the reason why trans women of color um, still faces so much oppression, do you think it's because um, of the so-called like infighting or like the intersectionality within queer community itself? <laughs> I mean, yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think trans misogyny is also like a special kind of, of evil. Of evil, yeah. Um, especially you, especially yeah. to like trans misogynoir. Um, but right, so when we, Cindy, you know this is a DPE, but right, like when we talk about oppression, um, we know that a strategy of things like colonization, a strategy of white supremacy is to encourage those who are oppressed to continue to perpetuate the oppressions. Um, whether it's on themselves using things like right, internalized racism or internalized homophobia as a concept, or whether it is putting into the heads of queer people that you can only, you can, you cannot have a race if you have a sexual orientation that is not straight, um, right? Like there are, in my previous positions when I've worked in just LGBT resource centers, I had students of color come in who were like, I don't feel like I can be black in this space, but I can be gay here. And then when I go to you know, our African-American center, I can be black, but I can't be gay there. 
Um, and I think the queer community specifically has a big issue around race mm -hmm. because right, racism doesn't go away just because you're a gay cis white guy. We know that cis white men have a problem with racism already. Um, we can see that and we know that cis white ladies do too. All white people do because have you looked at the election results still? Um, white people are still the problem, right? <laughs> um, so we know that there is a race problem in this country. We know that there is a race problem specifically with white people and that the way that we talk and learn about race is just totally bonkers. Um, and then when you add things like sexual orientation onto that and you give us an acronym that, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, plus, you know, and we have our queer alphabet soup, we then kind of had this idea that, oh, because we're in a community together, we're all going to be nice to one another. And my racism is just going to dissolve away because you're queer too, and that's fine. Um, and sadly, you know, we know that the systems of oppression in place don't allow that to happen. Um, so we have this really neat game where people who are oppressed just continue to oppress people around them. So you have, you know, white cis gay men who Kim kind of alluded to, right, like actively working towards things like marriage equality, doing things that we know are really self-serving, um, and then actively excluding like trans people from that narrative and actively excluding black people from that narrative. And if they're actively excluding trans people overall and black people overall, then we know that trans black people are gonna get doubly excluded too. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think in particular, the United States is ruled by like a couple of like big, big systems, right? Yeah. It's like white supremacy, colonialism and like the patriarchy. Um, and I think this comes out in the same way in the queer community as it does in any community and that we're still ruled by those systems, right? So like, that's where you get, you know, trans misogyny because it's still about trying to uphold the patriarchy mm. where you get, you know, anti, you know, when you get transphobia, it's clear has roots of white supremacy and colonialism. Um, and so, you know, you get people like Cam said, trying to, have proximity to privilege. And in the queer community, your proximity to privilege is being the most cis and mm -hmm. the most white that you can be. So that maybe the only thing that is different about you is that you happen to be gay or, you know, you happen to, yeah, exactly, that you happen to be gay. So then you get, you know, you get folks on Grinder, right? Yeah. That are, you know, cis white men putting like no fats, no femmes, no Asians. Yeah, on no, there. no spice, no rice. No is spice, no rice. Like all of this stuff, right? And that, and that's not even talking, right? And like, <laughs> you know, we haven't really addressed like trans women of color, but you can yeah. see how it, it it trickles down, right? Is that you know, if you have people saying these things, it, it makes sense that you know, people with that trans women of color yeah. <laughs> would be the most oppressed. Um, in, in the community. So I don't even yeah. know if it's necessarily infighting. Like, I don't think that it's like, oh, that we're just like fighting against each other. I do think that it is a fight to to be closest to privilege. Yeah. Um, um, and to distance yourself so that you can move through the world in a way that gives you more opportunities. Yeah. And I think based on that proximity of privilege, there are times where there are infighting and the most infighting I've ever seen is people trying to dismantle the acronym. Um, I know a lot of people who say, well, the T shouldn't be in LGBT because that's gender identity, not sexual orientation. So we should separate the gender from the sexual orientation because they don't have anything to do with one another. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, and really that's just a way to try to offload, you know, less desirable, less um, 
like cis and heteronormative individuals like trans folk, non-binary people, genderqueer people, um, because as Kim, you know, very eloquently put it, right, we, we have all these additional systems that are just at play. Um, and if I wanna push away the folks who are more oppressed than me, who don't have the same kind of privilege, of course, I'm gonna then advocate to drop them from the whole acronym together. Because I know the gays and lesbians can get as close to privilege as possible because they just happen to be gay. But these trans folk, I don't know what they're doing then, right? Yeah, I mean, it's the same stuff to take this a little bit away from like queerness when like, let's just talk about race and like maybe the election. Like it's the same stuff that happened. Like I'm Vietnamese, right? So like my community in this election, a lot of folks were Trump supporters. And that's not because, you know, I mean, I think it's, you know, we can talk for another podcast about, you know, the model minority and like all of mm -hmm. that. But it, again, it's another like proximity to privilege. It's, you know, internalized, whatever it is, right? If you're talking about race and it's like internalized whiteness, if you're talking mm -hmm. about queerness, it's internal and it's internalized yeah. homophobia. Like it's the same couple of systems <sighs> that I think are ruling a lot of what's happening in the United States right now. Yeah. yeah. And I think um, Ryan put a good comment in the chat about like the infighting around like neo pronouns. Um, this oppression Olympics is not just exclusive to like gay and lesbian people. It's also trans people trying to fight for proximity to privilege among ourselves too, um, right? You have, there's a common narrative of like pitting binary trans individuals like trans men and trans women against non-binary folks. Um, and there are some folks who really kind of embody that, you know, as somebody who is not non or is not binary right now in my life, um, but was at one point in time. The way that I was taught to walk through the world as a binary trans man, um, and some of the pushback that I did on folks who were saying, that, oh, well, I'm feminine and a trans man, and kind of like pushing back against those was just continue to perpetuate, you know, misogyny and the patriarchy. Um, and that idea of, if I can kind of replicate like white cis man normativity, I will be more accepted by white cis men versus being othered. Um, so right, we also have pronoun, we also have so much pushback against the people who use they, them pronouns or people yeah. who use like Z, Zim pronouns or um, like yo, yo, yo or per, per, pers because of how um, non-normative and there's air quotes around those for everybody who's gonna listen to the podcast. They are um, because again, the the further away you feel from normal to others, the less privilege you're inherently going to have because we're going to have to pause around things like your pronouns. Um, so there are people in the community who are then going to push you away or actively work against you um, as a way to then lift themselves up more towards privilege. So it's not just like a white cis gay thing. Yeah. Trans people do it to ourselves too. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely have people in my community be like, I'm so trans, I don't understand that you're non-binary. Yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely an issue that we have within the community yeah. too. Like three words popped up in my mind um, with the both of your answers. It's just, you can't win. <laughs> no matter what you do, you can't win because of the custom. And many of us feel that way, like, um, especially with intersectionality of peace and um, the oppression. It's just that, yeah, like hearing the, the trials and tribulations that the both of you have, and also the queer community and trans community have, it's just really like, um, 
Yeah, I cannot imagine walking amongst us and just have that feeling of I can't win. Like I can't have like a piece of myself. I can't I cannot express or rather you cannot express a piece of yourselves without backlash. And without people asking why. Um and that's really frustrating. And um since Cam, you started sharing about some of your experiences um, working first as a trans non-binary man and then um, non-binary, let's talk about um, the both of you. So um, for those who don't really know, Kim and Cam are together. And um, <laughs> and so um, Ryan gave your heart. So um would you um, be comfortable sharing about what is it like walking amongst or walking or living or surviving and thriving in this, um, in this world where there's so many systems that are put in place to um, basically go against your very existence? Like what is it um, like and if you can paint the picture um, of that? Oh, that's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like you should go first. <laughs> I think I pitch this one to you first. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's hard to kind of answer that question really succinctly. Because um, right, there's, a, there's a lot of working pieces that come into play when you have to exist as a trans person, specifically in the United States. Um, right? So for me, as a non-binary person, um, when I first came out as trans, I didn't know non-binary was like a thing one could be because um, it just wasn't part of the lexicon at that point in time. So I had to go through like gender therapy and um, then I pursued testosterone and then I pursued top surgery and then I pursued a hysterectomy. Now I'm still on testosterone. And I've got a little bit of facial hair. It's great, um, right? So it there is privilege in being able to pursue all of those things. Um, I was in grad school at the time. University of Michigan has a like gender clinic so I got my therapy for free. Um, I didn't have insurance, but the school was able to assist me with things like testosterone, so it was cheaper. Um, don't tell the Department of Education, but I used some of my grad school loan money to be able to get top surgery. Um, but don't tell them that. The Department of Education <laughs> asked that never happened. Um, Betsy DeVos is yep. gonna come. <laughs> I know she's gonna come for me, right? So there was a lot of financial privilege that I had in being able to pursue those things, which that I think makes like the legal aspects of existing in the US a lot easier for me, right? I was able to pursue a legal name change. Cameron is not the name that my parents gave me at birth. Um, I was able to pursue getting an M gender marker on my driver's license. I was able to pursue getting that on my birth certificate. It's on my passport. So in a very real sense of all of my documentation, I'm very binary. I'm legally male in the United States, um, even though I don't live my life in any way, shape or form in that way. So I think from that perspective, like if you were to look at me and Kim on paper, we look like a straight couple because all of Kim's documentation is all F and all of my documentation is all M. Um, which, you know, in a world where we've had conversations already about potentially marriage equality being repealed, 
Kim and I had a conversation <laughs> a couple of like like right before the election where Kim was like, what are we gonna do if we decide we want to get married? And they repealed marriage equality. And I was like, we would just get a straight marriage and because like, my oh, documentation yeah. <laughs> says this. I was like, oh, you're right. <laughs> right. I was like, I didn't think of it that way. Um, so right, legally there's some interesting loopholes around things, but I think when we go out, it's very strange, especially as I'm a non-binary person who is now read as like a, I'm gonna assume cis white man in society. Um, because Kim and I experience a lot of really fun things like latent sexism at restaurants where people will just hand me the check even though it's Kim's turn to pay. <laughs> um, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I want you to pay. It's your turn. But right, it even goes so far that right, like, you know, I'll, the server will hand me the check. I'll hand it to Kim. They'll see me hand it to Kim. And then they'll hand it and back. And then hand it back to me. They'll see me put down my card. And then upon returning, we'll still give it to Kim. And I was like, yeah. that, what? <laughs> it's my card. <laughs> yeah. I am not Kimberly. Also, you saw them put this on the check thing. Yeah. Um, right. So, so we get the experience, the, the joys of like sexism within a heterosexual context because we, we track as those. Um, but I think it also makes it interesting to like exist with friends um, or exist amongst like folks who maybe are newer in our circles. Yeah. Um, just because I think people then think that we're a straight couple and then don't realize that we're like secret queers, even though we're not secret about it at all. Yeah. I think what's tough for me uh, is not, is that like, I think because of mine and Cam's specific identities and the way that we present, we get to move through the world with like some amount of privilege, yeah. right? Um, but I think what's hard for me is like really honoring my experience and my identity. I find that really difficult to do. Um, so like an example is like, you know, yeah, it's like really, really great when we go out in public and we want to just like, I don't know, slide under the radar because I mean, Boston is, you know, anyway, I won't go yeah. into that. <laughs> um, <laughs> or when we go visit my parents in North you Carolina. You know, like right? it's not, it's, it's, to be honest, right, it is kind of nice to just, you know, be able to like somewhat slide under the radar. They might label us as like queer or gay, but they like may not, you know, think that we're trans. So that's yeah. kind of helpful, especially when we like go to visit, you know, Kim's parents in North Carolina. But I think what's hard for me is like when I sit at home and I try to like think about, you know, my gender identity and like how I want to be seen in the world, like that's, that, that is harder to achieve. Um, and so I think for me, the struggle is around like, how do I continue to like honor my identity and myself. And I think that gets harder. And like, I think Cam alluded to this. It's like, when we, you know, meet new people, is it like, do I immediately have to come out to them? Do I just like, whatever, like feel them out for like five times that we hang out yeah. and then eventually be like, wait, actually I use they, them pronouns. Like we're not, you know, a he, he, she couple, all of that. There's also like, you know, to go more like systemically, I think Cam, was talking about just like the ability to like change your name mm -hmm. and like change your gender marker. And like, as someone who has more recently come out as trans, something I've been grappling with, like um, I'm originally from California and I'm now living in Massachusetts, obviously. And both are states that are pretty progressive and have like discrimination protections. California specifically has gender marker X. Does Massachusetts have that? Uh, we have it on our driver's license, but not on our birth certificates. Okay. So, but like a question for me is like, yeah, I, I think getting a gender marker X would help me, you know, really affirm my own identity. But I have questions on whether or not I would want a police officer to know that I am mm -hmm. trans. 
right? Like your personal identification is something that every person gets to see. And it's like, while I want this really affirming thing and to, for it to be a record, I kind of worry that if I get pulled over by a cop and they see a gender marker X, I'm suddenly very screwed. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's, it's, it's moments like that where I'm like, I don't know how to actually truly honor my experience and live in this way. Um, so I think that's like more of the gripes that I have, not so much that, you know, around like me and Cam's existence, but more about mm-hmm. like how to truly be non-binary and feel like I'm affirming my own identity without, you know, putting myself out there for horrible things. To yeah. Happen. Um, and to kind of riff off of Kim's like mention of the gender marker X, which is a really great like third gender marker. Um, so we have a former roommate who's actually also trans um, and also non-binary and they're trans feminine. Um, and they're from New York City. So New York City is the only place in New York that you can actually get your birth certificate and your driver's license changed to an X. So our former housemate was like, I'm gonna do this because I still have a New York driver's license. Um, and I think they actually did it. Yeah. But when they did it, like I was like, I would panic because when I lived in Wisconsin, I got pulled over by an officer at like 6 p.m. for forgetting to turn my headlights on even though it wasn't dark. Um, and when I gave him my license that had an M on it, um, it was still from North Carolina at that point in time because I had just like moved to Wisconsin after finishing grad school and hadn't changed any documentation. Um, but it had an M on it. And when he went and ran all of my stuff, he came back and he's like, oh, so that's how they do it in North Carolina, huh? And I, he was very clearly like thrown off by the M because when he took my ID, he was calling me ma'am. And then when he came back, he was really aggressive. Um, and was not generating me at all, but like really, really aggressive. So I'm always like kind of exactly to Kim's point of, you know, do I want a cop to know that I'm trans? Absolutely not, no. I don't want to talk to a cop ever again. And I'm also a white person, right? There's so much privilege in being able to be like, I don't want to ever talk to a cop. I can probably avoid that because they're not going to actively harass me, Um, right? Like that was a terrifying experience on the side of the road at 6 p.m. in Milwaukee as a white trans person. So for me, I would love to also have an X on like my birth certificate and things because the M is better than the F, but also still drastically wrong. Um, but I don't want people to know yeah. unless I tell them, right? I don't, I don't want certain people to know, right? It's much more safe to be able to pass as a man to a police officer um, than it is to know that if something happened and I got arrested that they would immediately throw me into, you know, my own cell as a gender X person um, or potentially harass me because of it. And I think this all boils down to the fact that when it comes to like inclusion and acceptance in general, but like, because we're talking about trans folk right now, we'll just like frame it there. I think we're as a country and as a overall community, we still have a very like surface level understanding of what it means to actually be inclusive and acceptance. Um, and I think it, particularly for like trans folk, right? Like when you hear about trans folk, you're always like, oh, it's, you know, it's these trans people trying to get gender affirming care. It's about gender markers and yes, bathrooms, bathrooms, right? And like you, you hear about these big things and yes, those are important, but like what we're not actually thinking about doing is like, you know, what, what is beyond the gender marker? What is mm. beyond the bathroom situation? It's about actual inclusion and it's about actual acceptance, right? And so like, if you're just going to go and state, like, you know, if you're going to go and pass a state policy where, you know, everyone is allowed to use a bathroom for, you know, 
for which they're, you know, identify or, you know, everyone is allowed to change their gender marker. That's great. But if there's not also like the cultural and community change that goes along with mm. it, it means nothing. Right. And like, while I am so grateful to be in Massachusetts where there are non-discrimination protections for trans folk, um, fun, t- fun, fun fact, I actually worked on that campaign. Um, but you know, that's great, but like there's still folks getting harassed trying to use the bathroom, trying mm-hmm. to use public accommodations. We know that the Trump administration has recently tried to roll back non-discrimination protections like in healthcare. And so like if you have all of these statutes or ability to, you know, to change your gender markers, but there isn't actually like steps to actually make people feel included and accepted, I think that it's it's not enough, right? And so like while I can go and get a gender x on my you know driver's license do i want to like do i still feel safe to do those do so do i feel empowered to do so like no um and so i think that is an issue that we have to deal with is like okay you can pass all these laws but you also need to make sure that there is like true like culture change yeah yeah i so i look at discrimination in the workplace a lot and I see the same or not same but rather similar um, pattern where things are still very performative and they want to pass things that show that they acknowledge people but does not think of the again like the system and the big picture as a whole you know how to include people and it's not just about passing policies that um, show inclusion it's not like a showmanship issue. It's more of like thinking about, all right, so we pass this policy. What are the other things that we do to, like um, Kim said, empower these folks to take on their policy? Which um, is a great segue to um, talking about the elections, which y'all have mentioned. Um, so presidential election aside, um, that's again another episode altogether. Um, we have um, a lot of queer folks who ran and got um, seats in um, the different um, like Congress and Senate. Like for example, we have um, Sarah McBride, who is um, the highest in the sense, highest ranking trans person. And then we have also Maury Turner, who is the, f- I think the first non-binary Muslim um, um, politician. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. What What are your thoughts? Um, do you think it's effect um performative? Do you think it's um going to be effective? What What are your um opinions and stance on what has happened so far? Organizer, go. Hi, oh, man. I don't really have like a a great take on this. I mean. I think it's great. I think representation and visibility is great. And I am so happy that these folks are getting recognized and that, you know, we're getting that representation. Very similarly to my last answer though, I think that visibility and representation is just one one step in like true inclusion and liberation. And so like, I would caution us to just not like, as a community to not just like sit on our laurels and be like, okay, like Sarah McBride won this really great election. You know, we've had Danica Rome in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Like we have trans legislators and visibility is important, but like to draw this to like race, right? Mm -hmm. Like we've had black representatives and state electeds for a while now. I mean, not as long as we've had white people, but like, 
you know, but that doesn't mean that, that the black community is still being treated equitably in this mm. country, right? And so I would draw parallels to say, this is a great win, we should continue to do it. Obviously our message is getting out there, but it's not enough, right? Because just because you are the exception to the rule, right? Uh, you know, I'm happy that we have the exceptions to the rule when before we didn't have trans legislatures, later, tours. wow, I can't speak today. But again, like we, to, to in order to make sure that, you know, people are having the best life outcomes, mm. we can't just stop there. Yeah, um, right. I think there's also this thing, right? We are so far removed from our legislators sometimes, right? Like I know Ayanna Presley represents me in Massachusetts or actually did last time around. She actually doesn't anymore because Kim and I moved. Um, but right, like have I ever met Ayanna Presley in person? No. I, I know you have, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, okay, flex, fine. Um, Right, but if you think about like the people who need it most, kind of as Kim and I mentioned, like we started off this podcast talking about black trans women. Um, we know that a lot of black trans women are experiencing things like homelessness because a lot of homeless shelters don't allow trans people in. Um, so they're experiencing like really like deep homelessness and that they can't even get a shelter bed for the night. Um, we know that a lot of trans folks, specifically again, black trans women are experiencing higher rates of unemployment. Um, which is also compounded by the pandemic currently happening. Um, we know, as Kim mentioned, Donald Trump's administration tried to roll back um, health care for trans folks. So it was a 1557, um, which essentially said that as a trans person, somebody has to be able to serve me when I go into a hospital or try to get health care. They can't deny me based on my transness and that got repealed. Um, so again, we kind of have these compounding oppressions where we also then know that, okay, if we're talking about black trans women, we know that trans people experience a lot of voter suppression because if you don't look like the gender on your ID, oh, well, your ID is fake. Um, or if you've changed your name and you didn't update the voter roll, oh, you can't vote. Here's a provisional ballot instead if you're lucky. Um, and we also know that black people also experience outrageous amounts of voter suppression. Um, so, well, it's really great to have that representation in the legislature and be able to have those people who are starting to advocate on a large scale policy level um, for constituents who identify in similar ways that they are. We also know that, again, right, there's a good chance that people like me are going to get benefits from having, you know, a trans person in my state's Senate or my state's House of Representatives versus a black trans woman who is struggling much more than I am because of the compounding oppressions that she's experiencing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I remember, okay, first the election season this year was heavy. <laughs> and so, um, when the news came out about um, all these political figures um, essentially making history, um, people were celebrating, you know, at the same time, um, it was it was a question of, like you mentioned, hang on, we've, we have had Black politicians for a while and yet they are still being suppressed, they're still being oppressed in many different ways and in ways that hasn't changed ever since the formation of the United States. Um, and so 
um, that was interesting insight from 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 the both of you. And um, I also want to like give a shout out to a lot of, like a lot of the grassroots organizations and grassroots movements that have um, essentially led us to where we are right now. You know, with um, with when you mentioned voter suppression, it reminds me of Georgia. Yeah. Um, where, um, oh my God, I feel so bad. I forgot her name. Where, um, the, so, yes, yeah, Stacey Abrams. Um, she, because of what happened to her in her, in her race, she, um, I mean her, her race to, um, get the seat. She, she registered like, I think 600,000 voters, 600, 800,000 voters. And, um, I think um, it all happens on the ground, essentially. And I think we are seeing more and more of that, not just with um, the Black Lives Matter movement, but also like I've heard of clearing the census. Um, people are in that way trying to be in the system to beat the system, which also is a question from me to the both of you. So what are your thoughts about being in the system to try to change and beat the system um, do you think that works? Do you think um, it's something that's too visionary in a way that's not practical? Like, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Um, you have to be oh. <laughs> um, So, I mean, I think, you know, personally, I think what we desperately need in this country is democracy reform. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you know, I mean, I think it's great that, yeah, I mean, it's awesome that Stacey Abrams was able to build this like grassroots, like voter registration, like, you know, and, and to fight voter disenfranchisement in Georgia, but that's hard. Um, and like, what we need to really think about is that like, you know, a lot of these systems have been held hostage for so long um, and that there is so much power hoarding that for us to see true effective change, we do need some form of democracy reform. So like, I think going back to one, what I said about, you know, having trans legislators, like that's great and like wonderful, but they are, you know, still stuck in the system that mm -hmm. is holding all of us hostage. So what we need to strive for is democracy reform. Now, in terms of like your question of, you know, how we do that, um, I think, I think it's a, I think it's a yes. I, I think it's a complicated question. I think we need to have as a community, as a progressive like movement need to have like a really clear long-term vision, but also like we have to work for incremental change. And I think what is like tough about like my hot take is what I, I think what's tough about the progressive movement is that we have people that are either in either camps. Um, we have people that are like, burn it all down. We we only have to have a long-term vision. Mm -hmm. Like we can't be in the system because the system is inherently bad. We have those people. Then we have the people that are like, no, we need to be pragmatic. Incremental change is how we get there. Um, and I think what we actually need is both. We need to come together and be like, hey, this is our long-term vision for the future. And like, yes, we want to get it in this, this, and this way, but let's also work to like create and generate the small wins that's going to help people today, right? So that doesn't mean that we're going to like abandon all hope for, you know, the 2020 election or like the midterm elections or whatever, but that we're going to do both. Um, so like, you know, taking wins where we can, like in Georgia, while also like maybe visioning for a future where, you know, we don't have an electoral college mm -hmm. or that the Supreme Court looks different. Like, I think it's a mixture of both. What do you think? I think you said it, and 
better than I would have. I don't have anything <laughs> to add to that one. Speaking, you're a professional too. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of organs. So they know better than I do. So before we go on to kind of close up the session, um, does anyone here have any questions? I'm also going to hop on to Facebook to see if there's any question. Um, Christopher Adam Cousins say, class of 2011, what's up? Um, <laughs> hi, what's up? <laughs> um, so yeah, um, does anyone here have any questions or any, um, any sharing that you, that you want to share um, to our guest speakers? I want to say hi, Kim. I haven't seen you in a long time. <laughs> I saw you on Pose Instagram recently. Nice haircut. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. So um, if there's no questions, um, no other sharings, we'll, I guess, kind of end um, with one of two questions. So the first question would be, so what is your, what is the both of your vision um, for the future? Oh boy. <laughs> Cameron, you can go first. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think kind of one of the things that we have talked about pretty consistently through this is a vision for the future that incorporates those amongst us who are the most marginalized and who experience multiple compounding oppressions. Um, and trying to achieve that through a combination of, as Kim just kind of said, through little wins um, that are really tangible that impact people's daily lives, but also trying to do some systemic reform, whether that's reforming the queer community to make it more trans-friendly um, or working to um, redistribute power rather than balance power, um, which is one of Kim's favorite things to talk about <laughs> um, within the queer community. So that way we're not focusing right on gay, white, cis people, and I say gay is kind of including lesbians in that too, um, but that we're actually focusing on those within the community who might need additional supports um, to be able to get things like housing, right? Um, in the US, we've always kind of really passed policy or celebrated things that benefit those who already have means, right? The first thing that we did, as we mentioned a while ago, was go for marriage equality instead of things like job discrimination um, or housing discrimination or discrimination within homeless shelters. Um, so I think for me, I'm hopeful that a future incorporates things where maybe we see some of those trans folks who are now in those big positions of power in the legislature um, actively working to help protect other folks and that we see allies who are either queer folk who are allies um, or who are cis straight folk who are allies, being able to support some of that so that we have better overall like life outcomes um, for folks. I think that's, that's kind of my hope of the future is we stop having to be afraid to like exist and be around, um, which you would think is not like a huge ask, but it turns out it really is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would say I would say similarly. I think my hope for the future is very similar. I would say that my hope for the next like year <laughs> would be that like you know, with like renewed conversations about racial justice and social justice uh -huh. and all of that, that like we particularly as a progressive community are one 
pushing the Biden administration and all of yeah. our newly elected like people to, to to adopt the most progressive agenda possible, right? So like not getting complacent because we we've made some wins, um, and then two, um, like I've said throughout this entire like interview. Um, that we actually do racial justice, queer justice in a way that is truly inclusive um, and that's not just surface level and performative. Um, and so like, you know, I'm, t I'm done seeing, well, not I'm done, but like, I don't want you to just stop at putting your pronouns in your email <laughs> if you're not mm -hmm. able to understand why that's a best practice, right? You know, an example is that I started working at my company. I came in, everyone had their pronouns in their email and they misgendered me and they still do. I've been there for a year and a half. It's like, mm -hmm. what's the point of, you know, having this best practice when you don't know why it's so important when you don't, you know, when you don't honor that. And so I think, you know, that's like a very specific example, but overall, I think in terms of like policy and politics, like we really need to figure out how to do things in a race forward uh -huh. way. So like, don't just, you know, promote policies and then be like, oh yeah, and this also affects people of color and queer people because they just happen to be poorer, <laughs> right? Like do it in a way where you're centering those folks first. And then like, you know, this is kind of pie in the sky because I feel like people just can't do this, but like, you know, folks that are most marginalized should be in positions where they are developing yes. the strategies and the solutions. Mm -hmm. um, so like you need to be investing in marginalized communities you need to be investing in trans communities to like build up, um, you know, their opportunities and to be able to give them the space to actually be able to do that yeah. so that's my hope for like the next year i don't know if that's gonna <laughs> actually happen but that's you know i feel like it should yeah yeah and i think it's something that people can look at right because it's the next year and people can look at and definitely remember the whole um the next administration accountable um so ryan has a question how would you go about educating and advocating for the trans community and the most marginalized people without, um, quote, watering down the subject matter to be more palatable for the masses? Basically, how to get people to buy into something if they feel like they are so removed from these issues? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, so... This is hard. I don't have like a great answer for this. What I do have to say is that it is about building solidarity. Um, Cause like, and getting people to understand that to be in solidarity with people, you don't have to fully understand everything, right? Like you don't have to fully understand a trans man's experience, a non-binary person's experience or whatever to just like love them and want them to have the best life outcomes. And I think that's what we need to base it in and I think what a lot what we've been doing a lot on like campaigns and stuff is like really trying to educate people but like at the end of the day like you don't need to have like I mean it's an empathy is it sympathy anyway one of those words you don't need to know what it's like mm -hmm. to be able to like think that someone deserves to live their life and that's what we need to build it on now I don't you know I, I think in terms of race which is not about trans folk but like a thing that a lot of people are doing in racial justice is using a race class narrative. And so like, there's a lot of um, organizers that are in like deeply rural white states that are going on doors and talking directly with white voters about race and racism and racist dog whistles about how they have been using those and like the racial animus to actively divide people so that money and power is concentrated for people at the top. 
So that's like an example of how they're trying to like build solidarity to be like, hey, you, like you might not understand what it's like to be black. You might not understand what it's like to be poor and black, but like you can understand, you know, you're they're trying to like draw those connections to be like, they're pitting us apart <laughs> mm. so that, you know, the, the wealthy few can have all the power. So that's an example of how some people are trying to like build solidarity around race. I think like with trans folk, it's hard. I mean, when I was working on the campaign in Massachusetts, a lot of our messaging wasn't really about like trying to get people to understand the trans experience, but just getting people to understand that trans people are people and they also deserve dignity and respect. Um, so like, yeah, I guess that's my like long short answer of like, I think it's about building solidarity. The specific messaging, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think Yes on Three was also an interesting campaign too, because essentially what part of what y'all did was also remind people that we weren't all gonna go into like women's rooms and spy on people. Um, the No on Three's campaign logo was just somebody looking over a bathroom stall. Um, so right, like I, <laughs> but right, it, it is about kind of finding some of that commonality with folks who are like, well, I don't have anything in common with you. So, you know, cool, we can find the commonality of, I don't think people should be harassed in the bathroom. Yeah. I'm not going to harass anybody in the bathroom. Neither are you. Cool. You should allow me into the bathroom. Yeah. Because I promise I'm not going to bother anybody. I'm just here to pee. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think utilizing those narratives um, where we're able to find some of that common ground is probably one of the best ways to kind of get folks in the door. And then once we get them in the door, then we could say, okay, here are some of the other things that the community is struggling with now that you have a baseline investment, um, right? And the queer community has done this for a really long time in our historical organizing perspectives, um, right? If you think all the way back to like Harvey Milk, one of his biggest things was like encouraging folks to come out when it was safe, because if somebody knows a real life queer person, their acceptance of queer people and their visions of potentially being an ally and working in solidarity with us increase exponentially. Um, and it doesn't just impact the one queer person who came out to them and their family, it impacts everybody else. Now it's a lot of responsibility to put onto a person to come out and be like, hey, yo, it's me. Since you know me and you love me, you love everybody else, like don't actively oppress me. And it also doesn't work all the time, um, you know, because. I still have family members who voted for Trump and I'm like, hey, cool, great. Um, so that didn't work on them. But I think trying to use kind of like a multi-pronged strategy of whether it's interacting with people through like shared oppression saying, hey, you know, I am poor, you are poor. They're trying to pit us together and trying to drive my identity as a trans person in between us. Um, and I'm here to kind of talk th through that with you or coming out and saying, you know, right, we have Trans Day of Visibility in March, which I actually think has done a lot because it's shown the variety um, and just the like the beauty and the individuals throughout our community. Um, and I think when like cis people interact with that, they get to see that trans people are everywhere. So they kind of know that, you know, it's not just people who look trans or people who fit a particular box of transness, like agender folks are super valid, non-binary folks are super valid, um, gender queer folks are all super valid, gender fluid folks are valid. And they start to conceptualize us as more than just like one or two things that don't impact them and start to conceptualize us and realize that like they could be interacting with us in all walks of their lives. So thus it does impact them. Um, 
I also think one of the biggest things is reminding cis folk that they too have gender. <laughs> right? <laughs> Sorry. I'm like, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, but honestly, no, no right? it's, it's true. Right? We, we do it with white people all the time, right? We remind white people that we have race. Um, I think reminding cis people that they have gender then also reminds them that just because my gender is different from yours doesn't mean that we don't share something in common. Just because I live my gender in a different way or I experience my gender in a different way doesn't mean that we don't have something in common and thus we should work together because we still experience oppressions or anxieties or concerns around our gender, whether you identify as a man or as a woman yeah. or as you know, a lady or a gentle them or kind of wherever you are in between, right? Yeah. Or off the chart completely. And one last thing I know we're like basically at time, but I want to squeeze this in. Allyship is like complicated, right? But like, we can't do this on our own. And like, like I said, in the very beginning, you know, trans women of color have always done um, this activism, right? And it's not that like, you know, it's not that trans women of color need better messaging or whatever. It's the fact that like, our own community hasn't built solidarity yeah. with these folks. And so like, yeah, we can sit here and talk about strategy all day about how to message, how to find common ground, how to keep get people through the door. But if like other folks beyond trans folks do not start to like accept and also like buy into this agenda and mm -hmm. try to help us along, then there, I, I, yeah, I don't want to end this on a non-optimistic <laughs> note, but then like, we're still going to be stuck, right? Because yeah. it's not, it's not that like, trans organizers haven't been savvy or like haven't had the right like you know strategy about this it's truly about you know that solidarity that is lacking yeah. um and so like that is a key part of the ingredient like ingredient list yeah no for sure we, we definitely need solidarity right trans struggles and trans lives are not just ours only um they're impacted by everybody else around us so solidarity is super important um and everybody who listens to this podcast should go check out Trans Mass Resistance. Um, if you're around on Sunday, go to the rally and march, either virtually or in person. Um, but trying to find ways to get active and I think trying to find ways to talk about trans folks and educate yourself is a really good next step for the cis folk who are gonna be listening to this in the future to turn your bummer into a call for action. <laughs> <laughs> Cam makes my hosting so easy because that was what I was going to say. Um, so yeah, um, thank you both for coming. I want to remind everyone, like Cam mentioned, November 20th is the Trans Day of Remembrance. Um, remember our friends and, our, and folks that um, we live on this earth previously and have been um, attacked and some of them did not survive um, simply because of their gender identity and I really sick as a trans uh, no sorry as a cisgender heterosexual person um, I really implore everyone who wants to be an ally who wants to be an activist to really think about um, or and even anyone who has op um, opposing views towards gender identity um, and sexual orientation to really think about um, what harm does it do to you to just stand in to stand in solidarity with someone who is different from you like what Kim said we don't have to understand we don't have to be literally in their shoes to imagine what it's like to be in their shoes so what what's the harm for us as cisgender and heterosexual people um, 
to stand and stand by their side and say that we're with you and um, what can we do and how can we organize for our peers um, in our community so um, yeah with that we'll call this episode um, we'll call an end to this episode and again really thank you Kim and Kim and um, also folks who are here today with us and also to all of you listening in um, once again, this is What's Going On by Suffolk University Centre for Student Diversity and Inclusion. And we'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.